Welcome to Precision Vision, where we work to unpack the ag tech tools of today and keep our sights on tomorrow. With your hosts, Craig Huyen and Morgan Sager. Welcome back to the Precision Vision Podcast. My name is Craig Huyen. And I'm Morgan Sager. Today we are going to be airing the first part of our two-part series with Matt Roberts, um, who started as an ag econ professor at Ohio State and has worked through a couple of different unique careers. So we had a really wide-ranging conversation with him from everything about an orange Miata to labeling um, and rock climbing and a lot of other various interesting things. So we really hope you enjoy this conversation with Matt Roberts. Okay, so today on Precision Vision, we're sitting down with Matt Roberts. And uh, when I first heard you talk, were you still a professor at Ohio State? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Okay, and, and you know, just following your Twitter bio, it looks like you have a lot of stuff going on. Could you maybe introduce yourself for our audience, tell them, you know, kind of where you are now and how you got there? Yeah, sure, Morgan. Uh, my name is Matt Roberts. Uh, I live in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my background is I was a commodities broker in the mid-90s. Uh, I went to grad school. I always loved economics. Um, got a PhD in economics and uh, joined Ohio State University in 2001 as an assistant professor and grain marketing state specialist for OSU Extension. I uh, was there for 15 years, 16 years, uh, doing grain marketing. Uh, you know, being a state specialist like your listeners know around the country. Uh, late in 2016, I decided, you know, I wanted some new challenges in life. I got old just collecting a paycheck once a month. And it, there was a certain irony going around the country doing risk management education, knowing that I was in the least risky profession there was, which is a tenured professor at a state <laughs> university. So uh, I left. Uh, I started a consulting company uh, called the Kern Mantle Group. Uh, I do risk management education uh, and and consulting. I've worked for commodities exchanges, uh, commodity users, a um, little bit of everything. The way I like to say it is I'm really a privatized state specialist, honestly. Uh, Sidelight, uh, I also uh, co-own a chain of rock climbing gyms uh, in Ohio and soon to be in Pennsylvania as well. Huh. Um, in fact, right now we're about two blocks away from our, our primary location, our, our headquarters of that business. So I also do that. My responsibility there is really to get us into debt, and then my partners get us out. Oh. I do the, the lending relationships um, the, and the real estate relationships. I also sit on the board of a community bank and the loan committee of a community bank in north central Ohio. Um, and I have four kids and a grandchild. And so between all of it, I just try and drop as few balls as possible. Yeah. There you go. Well, you're coming at it from a lot of different angles, that's for sure. <laughs> it's fun. And, you know, the, I think people underestimate how much, so much of life overlaps. Yeah. And so even being in the climbing gym industry, the way it overlaps with agriculture is my target audience in the climbing gym industry are people between the ages of 20 and 40, professionals, um, 
and when we think about where a lot of the pressures that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in agriculture come from, it is that millennial generation, right? It's that wealthy millennial generation who doesn't have to worry about food being safe and affordable. They're worried about adjectives and they care about free range and local and heritage and <laughs> organic and blah, 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 blah. That's the world that I cater to over here. So uh -huh. I have a built-in, it's a very interesting built-in audience to do that kind of Oh, sure. um, uh, market research and talk to them about food. And it is funny because I do have many who are like militant vegans and this and that. And then they hear like, oh, you know, the owner is like, <laughs> he like works for the man in agriculture, right? Like, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. Let's sit down and talk. Let's, I'm happy to have this conversation yeah. with you. Yeah. And My so uh, it's, uh, barista this morning was vegan and let me know about that so, similar uh, oh, yeah. neighborhood here. So. Yes. That very, were you at the one over here on High Street? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's my neighborhood, Starbucks. Okay. okay. Uh, I probably know them. Um, yeah, and, and it doesn't mean I agree, but, you know, it's an important perspective that yeah. we have to have in agriculture because, like it or not, it's the world we live in. Yeah, mm -hmm. most certainly. And so, um, and I think that long term, there's a segment of agriculture that's going to be very, very, it's going to be able to benefit tremendously from this. As I like to say, coming from a car background, right, um, at the Chevy dealership, which now my brother-in-law uh, is the dealer there and my little brother works there also. Um, so does my older brother. Sorry, Bill. Um, <laughs> so, you know, coming from that background, you can go in there and half-ton four-wheel drive pickup, Chevy pickups. You can get a work truck that costs 35000 or you can get a high country that costs 75000 Yeah. There's still half-ton all four-wheel drive pickups. <laughs> Do we really judge the farmers and get angry at the farmers who drive the, the high countries? All right, we judge them a little bit, but not the LTZs that are 65000 Right. We're taking, Chevy is taking basically the same product, tweaking it a little bit, and selling it to different audiences for vastly different prices based on their willingness to pay. Mm -hmm. How is that really that much different than, you know, going from commodity number two yellow to uh, organic corn? Right. You know, we're, pri we're segmenting out. We're selling basically the same product to different customers at different prices. Yeah. That's what every business in the universe, that's their goal. And so there's going to be opportunities unlocked. Yeah. There's challenges there. I'm, I'm oversimplifying. And, uh, you know, if people are out there listening like, but you're forgetting. No, I'm not. No. I get it. There's some challenges here. Yeah. There's some differences. Yeah. My gears are turning trying to think of some of those challenges. And it's, there's a lot. The biggest, one, <laughs> the biggest one is fiat. So it's one thing when consumers do this. So we look at organic milk. Right. Right. Organic milk has grown up on its own. The government has not forced it. Nobody's forced it. It's market demand has driven it. Right. Dairies have changed it. Mm -hmm. that is the perfect example of this. We've right. got commodity milk to organic milk and all this other stuff. Um, there's The only thing the government has done is create a stamp and a set of standards for what makes organic. Uh -huh. I think that's fabulous. Mm -hmm. That's very different than the government coming in and mandating all production must be organic. Right. All right. But if consumers want to pay six bucks a gallon for milk. Let them. Let them. Yeah. If it makes sense, economic sense. I, I have some neighbors who pay $6 a dozen for their eggs from a CSA. The eggs still have poo on them. Yeah. All right? Now, and that's considered a feature, not a defect. 
because it shows how fresh they are and how natural they are. Now, I may sit and I think it's I think it's stupid, right? <laughs> but how long have we in agriculture complained about how little of the consumer dollar hits the farm gate? Right. How That's much of that point. consumer's dollar, that six bucks, hits the farm gate? Every penny of it. Hmm. So I through raise, the CSA, through through a C, like yeah, but usually CSAs are farms at least yeah. around here. It's no, a single farm, right? Yeah. So it hundred percent gets back to them because no processor is going to touch a poo covered egg. No, no. Right? I, I was thinking more of the organic milk piece too, where it's a six dollar a gallon for organic milk that goes through a, a whole series of, of handlers. So, but as long as if it's the same percentage, it goes back to the organic dairy. That'd be fine. They'd be getting more than the than the conventional dairy by far. Yep. Um, as long as that's that's carried through, then that would be great too. And if it's not passed through, then guess what guys do? They switch back to conventional. That's right. Right? So as long as it's market-driven, mm-hmm. I think there's great opportunities there. Yeah. The worry is when you get into things like the California um, layer regulations yep. and you know the, the cage regulations and right. stuff. That's what worries me. Yeah. I'm all for, and I would argue what the industry should really do is really promote across the industry more labels. You know, more voluntary labels, standard labels, and push that, and that pushes the cost on the consumer. Yeah. If the consumers want to pay that cost, let them pay it. What we want to avoid, and what I believe preempt, is mandatory production standards. Yeah. Yeah, there there'd be a lot of validation pro- challenges with that. Making sure that those labels are honored, or, or truly what they say they are. So there's going to be some cute. sort of. <laughs> we don't do that. Do we really do it with organic? What does natural mean now? Oh, uh, I mean no, that's true. It's, yeah. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I worked in the. Uh, I worked for a cooperative that had their own egg system. Yep. And and we did cage free, and and we were inspected. Yeah. And we we made sure that those were all within, um, they call it humane animal practices. Yep, yep. So uh, we were self-regulated in that regard so that we can get that stamp. Sure. And so that's where I'm talking about is, is making sure that, yeah, we have all these different labels, but we still have to make sure, we still have to have a third-party validation Correct. come in and say, and now that creates another layer of, of, of information that has to be achieved or, or acquired. Uh, a whole new labor of training for inspectors that they already say is not enough of, Yep. period. So there's going to be a lot of challenges with that. There that are, but the world we live in, we live in a world where consumers are getting wealthier and wealthier. Yeah. And they're going to demand more and more things that we may sit back and go, well, this is kind of silly. Right. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. This is what I, I love to point out to growers. Guys, look at your own clothes. You know, how many of you are clothed 100% from, you know, from, from Target or, or wherever, the lowest common denominator? Yeah. How often are you wearing a pair of boots that's, you know, nice? Yeah. Or your truck is a high country or an LTZ instead of a work truck? Right. Why do you do that? Well, I'm, I can afford it. I'm yeah. going to get something a little nicer. Mm-hmm. You know, how many growers drink nothing but like Bush Light and Milwaukee's Best? Right? It's like, no, I, you know, I... I I make enough. I'm going to I'm going to buy myself an IPA. Yeah. That's the world we live in and it's great. We live in this wealthier world and people want to move up that chain. There's definitely issues with it. Yeah. I would argue almost every good and bad thing we're dealing with right now in agriculture is this is from the same cause and that's wealth. Okay. And it's not going away and we don't want it to go away. 
It's, it's what's given us the ability to, um, you know, have markets globally for the amount of crops we're producing. It's also what has meant we have consumers that are now wealthy enough to care about things like animal welfare. Yeah. You know, animal welfare inspector in North Korea is not a thing. No. Right? That's a good point. You know, that exists because we're wealthy. Yeah. You know, animal welfare inspector in like the Congo, no. Mm -hmm. Water quality inspector in the Congo, no. No, no. Right? That's because we're wealthy. It's annoying, but that wealth also gives us the opportunity to, to have these businesses that do allow us to buy, to, to write checks to John Deere and yeah. Chevrolet and the way we do and, and have the lifestyles we have. That's fair. That's fair. So, a couple of things. Yeah. I, I figured Twitter would be upset if I didn't ask what vehicle you drove, um, but that's like for a whole nother. Yep. Nope. Fair. <laughs> it's actually story. recently changed. So, <laughs> I will tell you right now, um, I just bought this year the first new vehicle, technically the second new vehicle. In 1997, my wife and I did actually buy a Chevy Metro uh, on which we spent $4,600. It had three cylinders. Uh, since then, we've driven all used cars, everything else. Uh, in February, I had a really good year, and so I ordered a limited edition 30th anniversary Mazda Miata. There's oh, only nice. uh, 600 in America. Yeah. Uh, it is bright orange, and that's kind of my favorite color. So <laughs> I actually, and I just got it two weeks ago. So I drive oh, awesome. a 2019. If you, when you drive out, it'll be obvious a 2019 <laughs> a Mazda Miata. My wife drives a 2019 Buick Tourex, okay, uh, station wagon. It's a fabulous car, and they're not selling very fast. I don't know why. It's made in Germany. It's a fabulous car. Uh, it's a wagon. Uh, it's very fast, very smooth. Um, our youngest just went to college this year. So finally, like in two days, uh, so we decided, or I decided she needed something a little nice. Yeah. So she has earned it. So we bought her and that's what she wanted. Okay. <laughs> she wanted a wagon. Uh, she drives a Buick Turex. I drive a Mazda Miata. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. I'm really glad you cleared the air about what you drive. I, that's what I drive. There was a little bit of a Twitter storm about it. I was actively following. When was that? Oh no, that was the pickup truck. Thing. Yeah, that's what I was Oh, asking. that was totally different. Oh yes, the lifestyle. Were you I forgot why I was about the pickup truck. Never. Never bring this up. Oh my gosh. I didn't know. I thought words maybe so words matter. Subject. No, we I'm very transparent in my life. Words matter. The backstory, I was at a lenders meeting and talking to lenders. And so my youngest son went to college, is going to college in 2 days. So one of the colleges, he filled out his, um, his application and the financial aid comes through. And the financial aid, you know, you have these normal, they, this college did their entirely separate one, a different, their own. So you're normally doing income and all of this stuff. But then they get down to and they say, what cars do your parents drive? What is their primary car that they daily drive? And, and at first, I was like, that's weird. I've never seen that asked. And yeah. so I kind of sit there as an economist. I always want to know why. I want to know why. I figure there's a good reason. And it struck me, you know, especially because with my other business, I'm involved a lot in real estate, real estate development, uh, or some of my other businesses. And it's really easy in real estate or in farming 
constantly report zero incomes, right? Mm -hmm. You're still living. You may still have a very high standard of living, but you're right. reporting a zero income. Yeah. So what's a good way to get, what's a good signal of your actual lifestyle? Well, what do you drive on a daily basis? Yeah. Okay. And if you're driving, if, you know, if you're driving a $75,000, uh, you know, three quarter ton high country and your wife is driving a brand new $80,000 Suburban and you're reporting zero after zero after zero, you probably do have assets and income at your disposal. Yeah. And so I was talking at a, at a lender's meeting and I said, you know what? The cars people drive is a great indicator of farmer's lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so a reporter who was at that meeting tweeted that out. You're econ prof. Cars are a great <laughs> indicator of lifestyle. Oh my gosh, never bring up the kind of pickups farmers drive to farmers. <laughs> and I've said this dozens of times to, to, to growers. Um, that kind of blew up, but I'd like to think it wasn't with context. Yeah. Right. But I do believe that, and I sit on the, the board of a, of a community bank here in Ohio, and I do think, and I, I look at when we look through debt, you know, I, I know who the lenders are for you know, uh, the banks that primarily lend for auto loans. So I'll go down there and I'll see. And if I see, recently saw one, you know, where they had three clearly auto loans of a thousand bucks a month. Each. Like each. Three different ones. Thousand dollars a month. Interesting. And you know, and now if you're running cattle, okay, you, you may need that. Yeah. If you're, you know, all this stuff. But is that from cattle or is that a brand new suburban? Mm -hmm. You know, is that cattle or is that a half ton high country? And, and so I think that's a great indicator beyond the simple profit and loss. But I'm very transparent about my life. <laughs> I, I have no problem with that question. Um, uh, it is a little embarrassing. I did have to admit it <laughs> growing up as a Chevy dealer's son in a small town. So I had to admit on Facebook this spring that like, hey, I did this. Yeah. <laughs> and I did notice like my immediate family were like still many of them have not liked that. It was one of my most liked posts on Facebook. And oh, yeah. I, I noticed that the family who's still in the dealership is they're probably a little cold towards this. Gotcha. But we'll just have to move on. I couldn't afford a Corvette. So there you go. So you got a limited edition Miata. Got a limited edition Miata. Maybe, maybe one day I'll, I'll graduate to a Corvette. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to get us that off track. I was just, uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, it definitely looked like something got taken out of context, and man, oh, did people get upset about people it. People were flipping yeah. out. <laughs> oh my gosh! It was really interesting to to watch. I but. used to, I used to be really worried because I did a talk uh, on policy about the time. Uh, President Trump was elected. It it went totally sideways, and I was like, I'm never talking about t policy again. And now I'm I'm never talking about pickup trucks again. <laughs> I think the perspective that Matt brings to agriculture is very refreshing, and the fact that he was able to dive into all these different sidebars and bring out some good information and some valuable information that we could use. And I think that we're going to be able to look forward to our next. The next part of this conversation that we have where we dive into more of the grain marketing components and merchandising and, and how you develop a marketing plan and things of that nature. Yeah, so make sure you tune in next Tuesday. Uh, Matt gets into a, actually a pretty tactical plan that you can implement this fall to help manage against some of the variability that we'll, we will continue to see throughout the rest of the growing season. Most certainly, and, and uh, hopefully you enjoy that uh, just as much as you enjoyed this episode of the Precision Vision podcast. Inside the boundary and out of the box. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to the Precision Vision Podcast with your hosts, Craig Huyen and Morgan Sager.